HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit christmastreesny.org. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palacigo, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And you know, butter has gone through a rough life. They've had a bad rap. They're either the enemy or they're the savior, and then back again, kind of like salt. Uh, You know, you never know, should I eat it? Shouldn't I eat it? And I think we now have some pretty definitive answers on fat and particularly butter. And even better, I've got a butter expert here today. Joining me today, Elaine Kosrova. And Elaine has written the book Butter, a rich history, rich indeed. Um, Elaine is, she was, um, she went to the CIA as a pastry chef uh, in the pastry program and became a pastry chef and also holds a BS in food and nutrition. She began her career in food publishing as a test kitchen editor at Country Living Magazine and then continued writing in, and her work appeared in many different magazines. Then something interesting happened. She got interested in another milk product, <laughs> cheese, and she helped uh, found a magazine called Culture All About Cheese. Uh, her work with that and, um, and her specialization in cheese led, I think, to her interest in butter, but we will find out. Mm -hmm. And uh, the book is really quite a complete history. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Uh, So did did indeed cheese led to your obvious interest in butter? I mean, that's... Uh, Yes, because, I mean, I started to notice before culture that um, there were, you know, if you could get some imported butters and some artisanal butters, there was different things going on with them, you know. So I was kind of fascinated by the craft and science of butter even before culture. But when I got to the magazine, 
that really helped me, you know, understand what was going on in the dairy world. I spent almost five years behind the scenes, you know, meeting the animals, the farmers, the processing. And so I could then understand that butter is this sort of confluence of man and land and animal that's so unique because it's so fresh. You know, unlike cheese, which can have quite a lot of manipulation, butter is quite simple and pure. So it's kind of this direct communication about those three things. Yeah, almost like milk itself. I mean, just, mm. you know, we were talking before the show about um, milk and what's happening to the milk industry and the, yes. how highly, you know, it's such a highly perishable product. Exactly. Butter then comes mm-hmm. second and, of course, then cheese. Yeah, you know, but then, you know, you have the butter maker brings a lot to the process. It makes it super interesting, too. Um, so, yeah, so I love, you know, the variations in the butter world and kind of, reading butters for them, studying butters, see what's going on. Well, it used to be an easy process going to mm. the store and picking up yeah. your pound of butter. Today, you look at the yeah. butter aisle mm. and there are mm. butters galore. Yes. Of, you know, And they'll have all kinds of names and designations and mm. countries of origin. And yes. now we have a lot of artisanal butters being made. Yeah, yeah, like, I guess, would you call them artisanal butters being made? Small you know, batch butters. Small batch butters, okay. Some of them are artisanal. Yeah, um, it makes the selection process a little daunting, but yeah, <laughs> this book helps sort mm-hmm. things out for me. Yeah, but I, re- I guess really it gets down to taste, right? Uh, yeah, you know I've developed a real fondness for cultured butters. Uh, although you know this a sweet cream butter is is still the most popular. You know, from most most people, that is definitely the most popular butter, and it's you know. It can be nutty and beautiful and very simple in, in, its, um, in its delectability, whereas cultured butter, I think because I spent so much time with cheese, mm. you know, I appreciate that little bit of acidity that you get with that variety. But it is, as you said, there's so many choices. It's a great time to be a butter lover. Well, let's talk, let's go back to the beginning, mm. the way mm. beginning. I think yeah. the story, you tell the story yeah, in a very... Um, I think half humorous, but but yet accurate way. I mean, through accidental turning. I mean, who hasn't taken a, a pint of cream to whip mm-hmm. it into whipped cream and right. started talking to you know somebody? Right. You turn around and go, whoops. "Whoops!" Yeah, and then some people throw it away, not realizing that it's that it's butter. They right. created butter. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, tell 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 us the story mm-hmm. that you, uh, if you would share mm-hmm. the one sure. that was told in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, this is about, you know, the first butter, if there ever was an actual first. I think more likely that it happened in different places around the world rather than one place and then spread out. Mm-hmm. But essentially what what we believe, you know, what histo- food historians believe and, and um, anthropologists, archaeologists, is that it began with uh, nomadic people who would have kept sheep and goats because those are very comfort loving animals they really they're easier to domesticate and so it's likely that the first butters happened with sheep or goat milk and the story that i tell in the book is that a a shepherd collects the milk from the animals and then it sits overnight and it chills a little bit it would have been kept inside an animal sack like a goat skin because that's not porous and so it's cooling down and it's culturing a little bit inside the sack. And then the next day, the shepherd, you know, loads it on his back or the back of the animals and 
takes a journey, you know, to the next valley and through the, the rocky process, through the rocky hills, right. <laughs> rocky hills, and so it's rocked back and forth, and it's essentially churned. And lo and behold, you know, he opens his sack, and there's these delicious, rich morsels of fat. And of course, um, not going to throw anything away. Not right? at all. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It. And that would that those butters would have been um, white in color, by the way, the sheep. Sheep butter and goat butter, so it wouldn't have been golden pieces like we Now, have. that was a question I had as we got on to some of the other butters. Um, you say that would have been white, and I thought, now does that have to do with where they were grazing, what they were eating, or the the enzymes and fats? And, and It actually has to do with the animal's um, metabolism, how they take nutrients in. So... All these animals, cows, goats, sheep, they all take in plant matter, which has beta-carotene, but they, the cow stores the beta-carotene in their tissue, and then when they are making milk, it comes out of their tissue into the milk, and beta-carotene is naturally yellow. These other animals take the beta-carotene from the plant and convert it to vitamin A, because it's very close. You know, It's mm. like a mm-hmm. little, one little step, and it's vitamin A, and that's colorless. So it's the same, nutri- you can have the same, so either way you're getting it, right? the nutrient is there, but you just, it doesn't have a color, hmm. which I think is kind of amazing. Yeah. So, you know, you wouldn't, shouldn't look, you can look at a cow's butter and say, wow, that's really pale. They didn't have a lot of beta carotene in their diet, which is true, but you can't do that with the other butter, you know, sheep and goat and water buffalo. Those are naturally white. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. And yet it's... Uh, um, it's known that the Irish um, mm-hmm. breeds, some of the herds have, their butter is much um, a much more pronounced yellow color oh, yeah. from, beta, well, from the beta-carotene. Oh, yes. When you when you talk about cows, it's a completely different thing, you know. Well, we're not there yet. It's yeah. too early in history. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they didn't domesticate cows for a long Well, they a need, especially time. if they're nomadic, because mm-hmm. cows need... You know, to, you yes. can have one cow maybe and walk them along, but right. not, not a herd of cows. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and even when they did domesticate them, they tend to use them for plowing fields and things like that. It wasn't, they didn't become a dairy animal until much later. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about these early nomadic tribes who um, milked their sheep or goat and, and then made the butter, mm-hmm. about how long ago are we talking? Oh, well, you know, they're still figuring out domestication and trying to nail it down. I think we're talking about 9,000 years ago. Mm. Okay. Very long time yeah. ago. Mm-hmm. And actually, you mentioned in the book that um, uh, paleontologists or archaeologists found some proof of, of this from centuries ago, like 4,000 or more years ago, mm-hmm. of the, the sacks that they were um, uh, churning the butter in, right? Uh, the sacks and the the containers, you know, the um, the clay containers can actually hold uh, some of this Resident, dairy yeah. dairy enzymes, dairy matter. It's, it's like buried inside the clay. So that's that's pretty recent, actually, that they've been able to examine them and find hmm. these uh, this proof of of dairying way back when. Mm, and did, yeah. didn't I read that they built sort of a tripod thing, like a like a baby's rocker. Oh, uh, that, for rock butter making, yeah. yeah. So it moved off, you know, when they figured out, oh, we can maybe make this happen intentionally. Rather um, than tying it yeah. to our, <laughs> our mule. Yeah, and like. actually there are remote communities, I believe, um, 
you know, in the Middle East where they still, and they're nomadic for the most part, these people still use this primitive tripod of, you know, three, three twigs, essentially, you know, sticks from trees, and hang and hang a sack filled with milk and just rock it back rock and forth. Rock it back and forth until yeah. it's butter. I mean, it's absolutely like primordial huh. butter. <laughs> Very interesting, yeah. Um, so the back to the um, the diet of these... You, you pose a very interesting question to um, one of the scientists that you used to research your book, and you said, well, how can all... How can, you know, this... This animal on such a, <laughs> a totally vegetarian diet, mm-hmm. uh, albeit with several stomachs you know, right. chewing many times, yes. produce this product that is so high in these wonderful globules of fat. Yeah, yeah, I call it the Rumpelstiltskin effect. Huh. Um, yeah, I because I live by farms and past mm-hmm. these cows, you know, chewing on the land, and uh, it's always kind of, yeah, filled me with wonder, you know, how they give us such rich stuff from this fairly lean diet. And it's all because of the <clears throat> their anatomy and chemistry, their biochemistry and anatomy. They have this stomach with four compartments, and it's a fermentation process that essentially breaks down the plant matter, you know, till its most basic carbon units, really basic, and it reassembles them um, into what's called volatile acids, and that's the, the basis for creating fatty acids. So it's it's just completely stripping it down to you know the most fundamental molecules and rebuilding it into fat. Um, and it's you know something they they just do really well. <laughs> it's Obviously, remarkable. yeah. 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 That's I mean, that is quite remarkable. Although some animals do produce milk that's higher in fat than others, and you mentioned yes. particularly the the water buffalo. The water buffalo does. The sheep produces milk that's about three times more fat than cow than hmm. cow's milk. In fact, I know a sheep uh, butter maker who struggled to make butter until she realized her milk was actually too fatty. It's ironic that you know she actually had to skim off some of the fat in her milk so it would churn because if there's too much fat you can't you can't your butter won't come I know it sounds very counterintuitive but it's true (laughs) it does (laughs) yeah and then there's reindeer milk which is actually um can you can make butter out of the Laplanders made butter out of reindeer milk very very small amount of milk but it's super rich Hmm. Super, super rich. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So before you throw out that whey, after you've made your (laughs) (laughs) mozzarella or whatever, you know, just think twice, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Especially if you have a reindeer around. Hmm. Um, And the diet, back to the diet again, you you talk about a lot of things that farmers have learned, obviously through, you know, chemistry and and biology and... Mm -hmm. and, um, so much more about what they're feeding the animals and mm-hmm. how to produce better butters yeah. <laughs> or butters with a different flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said yourself you learned a lot of new terminology for some of these these items they were feeding them. Yes. What talk about yeah. that in the diet and how they how they sort of affect the flavors? Yes. Well, and again, it, uh, what I discovered too is that animals, different animals, eat different things. You know. Um, the sheep and goats 
really like more stubbly, coarse matter. They're not so much um, grass eaters. They like, I think it's called brows and orbs. That's the terminology. Mm. Mm. Um, so they're often eating different things than what a cow would be eating. Um, so as far as, you know, I, when I went to Ireland, that's when I really became aware of, you know, the fact that for a lot of dairy farmers, uh, their work is about the grass. It's about building up a beautiful grass for pasture, and the animals will essentially take care of the rest. That, you know, one farmer in particular said, I'm really a grass farmer because if I keep amending the soil and, you know, adding certain seeds and clover and uh, making a super beautiful grass, then my butter will be fine. Cows will like, be happy. Cows will be happy. So he, you know, you think of dairy farmers as paying attention to the animals, but in fact, there's a lot, so much that's involved in in their pasture work. Well, and he, as he said, <clears throat> starts with the soil. I mean, have really good Absolutely. soil and good good yeah. nutrients in the soil and no, yeah. you know, harmful. Well, that too, of course. Additives. Yeah, the purity of it. But even just from a flavor point of view, and making sure there's not things like wild onions that will, mm. you know, make the uh, the butter have an off flavor. You know, they found ancient butter in Ireland. I'm sure you've probably heard of bog butter. Yeah, and uh-huh. and, and some of it uh, has still has a garlicky essence to it, even after hundreds of years. Because it was just wild. They were eating eating in the wild. wild. All right, talk about bog butter. I'm I'm sure that a lot of listeners aren't aware of the story Mm. behind bog butter. Yeah, so... First of all, you got your butter, okay, and you you need to keep it... Well, you need to keep it not refrigerated Mm -hmm. as we do today. I mean, Mm -hmm. that changed the industry, too. We'll talk about that later. But but you have to keep it fresh. Right, right. Yes. So... uh, the uh, the ancient Irish, you know, um, people that were living there, even before it was called Ireland, I believe, you know, it was a very tribal place with um, the very early settlers there, uh, indigenous people rather. Anyway, so old old Ireland, you know, they're dairying, they're making butter, and they put they put it essentially um, in these primitive wooden barrels, and they bury it in the bog because the bog is very acidic and no oxygen, you know, it's essentially a great place to preserve practically anything. Hmm. Um, they've pulled out a few old bodies, in fact, that have been <laughs> okay. preserved Next for a long time. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, this was a means of preservation, but what I discovered in my research was that they found, so this is, was happening for at least a thousand years, you know, they were burying their their butter in the bog to preserve it, we assumed. But now they've done a sort of map of where these discoveries are, where the bog butter is being found, and they've realized that uh, it's on the boundaries of very important sort of um, um, sacrificial sites, you know, um, sites that had to do with um, the fairies and the elementals and the gods, you know, certain areas that were kind of sacred. And they believe that many of the bog butters were a, a pagan offering then to, you know, to the elementals and the spirits. So it was a sort of a peace offering, huh. which really makes a lot of sense to me because butter was so valuable. You know, I can't imagine that they would just bury it and forget it or leave it, you know. And oh, I moved on, but oh, I forgot yeah. my stash of yeah. butter. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Got to go dig it yeah. up. Um, that 
is a perfect lead-in to um, talking about some of the other uh, spiritual or mm. mystic kind of Connections. attributions to, yeah. to butter. Butter, yeah. I never knew that butter, uh, and not that I knew that much about butter anyway, yeah. compared to all these uh, facts that you're throwing out here, mm-hmm. but that butter had such a rich history in terms of, well, you just mentioned, it was a valuable item. You figure you have yes. all this milk, you get a little bit of butter, mm-hmm. everybody wants the butter, so yeah. there's a high price to pay for it. Yes. And it yes. becomes like gold, right? It, right. It's, it's, well, yeah. it is gold. Well, and that was actually another reason that they, that they did bury it was to protect it from the overlords who would come in and ah, want to take yeah. the butter. So there was yeah. another reason to stash to stash it. But yeah, but butter had this incredibly rich metaphysical life way back when. You know, I was amazed to discover that around the world, ancient peoples used butter as a sacred tool in their spiritual practice. I mean, it was uh, you know, the Sumerians, the Vedic Aryans, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Druids, they all had these different rituals that involved using butter. That was one big surprise. And, uh, you know, some of them were quite simple. The Vedic Aryans worshipped a fire god named Agni, and they would take ghee, which is clarified butter, mm-hmm. And they would sprinkle it on the flames when they were in the midst of their worship. And the flames, of course, would crackle and dance. And they would recite these verses that were, I mean, I have one in my book. Um, it's, it's essentially poetry about butter and how butter makes the gods happy and, you know, streams of flowing butter. And it, it's really quite remarkable. Yeah, so I found that, you know, there were all these beautiful uh, ways people appreciated butter beyond eating it, you know, beyond uh, its commodity value for them. Right. And, and then, of course, there were also, you write a lot about the um, the sculptures, the Tibetan yes. butter sculptures. Yes. Did you actually mm-hmm. see them? Well, y- yes, not the ones in Tibet. Uh, I, didn't, right. I did no. not get to Tibet. You <laughs> right. know, I went to Bhutan. Um, and but I tell saw, us about that. What, why mm-hmm. this, how this came about, and what this is—the sculptures. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was doing research and, into the early, you know, life of butter, and came across um, again many of these different practices. And I had, you know, I went online to look at Tibetan butter sculptures because there's quite a lot that you can see online. All these elaborate, detailed, beautiful sculptures—they're actually called tormas, mm. and you know, they're created to be put on an altar so that when the Buddhists are having a festival or a particular event to honor a deity or to set an intention, you know, it becomes the centerpiece of what they're doing. So it's a really important fixture in what they, in their practice. So I went online uh, to find out more about it and just actually contacted a monastery across the river from, from here where I live and I was put in touch with a woman who is an expert on torma carving. That's what it's called. She actually created a film about it, and I visited with her. She's a Buddhist nun, and I went and spent an entire day looking at her footage and learning all about the different uh, techniques involved. And, you know, the, the sculptures that she showed me were mostly footage from India where the Tibetan Buddhists have been... Are, are in exile, and because it's India and because of the heat, 
They've had to modify the traditional form, so there's some butter mixed with margarine, mixed with a little paraffin. You know, in Tibet, for centuries, it was just yak butter and flour that formed the paste that they used to do these elaborate, beautiful carvings. But it's been modified in India. I mean, they still, the practice hasn't changed at all, but the material is different. And it's not as... Um, it doesn't melt away in the same in the same way that the original uh, tormas made of yak butter and flour would melt away, and that's actually part of that's intentional. You know, just in the same way, uh, Buddhists have sand mandalas that are mm -hmm. meant to, to meant to dissipate. Right, right. That's um, that that was the great thing. You know, that they felt was wonderful about butter sculptures is it didn't become this permanent thing that it eventually melted away and then you have to rebuild and it comes back. You know, it's very much a Buddhist way of thinking. You know, mm -hmm. things are transient. And so lots to see. And I have gorgeous pictures. I so wish my book had full-color photography. <laughs> well, we'll just have to, you'll have to have a website where you put some of these yeah, beautiful exactly. things up there. Um, it's interesting because you... Um, you talked about the the butter sculptures melting and and that that was intentional and it was yeah. sort of um, like mm. some people felt uh, maybe it was in the sixth century I think it was the sixth century mm -hmm. there was a, a a spiritual feeling that the act of, that butter making was a yes. was a special <clears throat> spiritual act that it was mm -hmm. a metaphor for the stages of development or exactly something, right? because essentially from you know, milk you get cream, from cream you get butter, from butter you can get ghee. I mean, for many of these cultures, they used ghee. And so, you know, this kind of symbolized this evolution that you could keep refining and refining, you know, your your soul um, in the same way that dairy is refined to make this beautiful golden object at the end. So mm. it was very, very symbolic. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk more about mm. um, some of this ancient butter and bring us up to date on mm. modern day butter as well when we come back after a short break. wonder where your Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arrival to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer, and trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space in agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC to make farm-fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit christmastreesny.org. We're back, and I'm, I'm talking with Elaine Kusrova about butter, a rich history, very rich indeed, and very tasty also. Uh, 
who knew that there was so mm. much mysticism involved with butter and, and, mm. and specialties? Well, then, of course, we were talking about, you know, ancient times, but even up through the 15th, 16th century. I mean, mm-hmm. starting in, well, probably in the 13th, but even around Martin Luther, you know, the, the Roman Catholic oh, sumptuary yes. laws that would prohibit mm. I mean, anything, you know, during, yes. yeah. <laughs> during fast days. <laughs> and butter became this... this um, Exalted, prohibited item. Yes, right. People would right. pay money to have yes. the excuse to be able to eat it. They did. It was kind of an extortion, honestly, by the church. But of course, they said yeah. you could eat, you could use oil, and they were thinking, yeah. uh, you know, Mediterranean people were thinking olive right. oil because they had a lot of it, right? Yeah, it was really unfair when you think about the fasting uh, decrees because the people in the south, you know, they had fish, they had oil, you know, they had uh, a almost year-round year round growing season, you know, they, so they could have a lot well. of vegetables. They did fine with the fasting, but in the north, they completely depended on animal products so much for, you know, for their sustenance. So, you know, it was kind of a starvation, you know, that they, they, they eventually revolted against, but it took about 100 years. So in that process, yeah, there was um, this decree that if you... And, you know, if you pay a certain amount of money, you can, you can enjoy your butter. I just found that so <laughs> terrible. Even though, even <laughs> though it's a fast day, you yeah, can eat butter if yeah, you give me yeah. $500. Right, right. <laughs> no, and yeah. Then, yeah, it wasn't, I think, until about 1490. It was a famous queen. I'm forgetting her name right now. But she petitioned Rome, you know, for clemency. You have to... You know, we're suffering here. You have to let us have our butter. Yeah, interesting. And, um, eventually she, yeah, she won over, and, and then the other countries followed suit. Well, that, good thing, because... Yeah. You know, yeah. And it's funny, because then look what happens. You know, fast forward, and we're all issuing butter and saying, no, we're only going to make do with olive oil, well, because now olive oil right. is, is accessible to everybody yes. you know, everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. And, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and, and oh, no, butter is a bad mm-hmm. thing, you know. So, as I said at the top of the show, yeah. like, <laughs> now we're reverse things, and butter's okay to eat. Well, and they said it. They've, mm-hmm. It's been shown to um, fight against heart disease and some yes. cancer. Yes, I know. The science is so... Osteoporosis, all kinds the, of things. The yeah. science is, is just so much better now. Well, it's hard to know what to believe from one year to the next. But as Julia Child always said, everything in moderation. Moderation. I'm a great believer in that. I I really am. I I believe so. Yeah, I definitely follow that creed. Well, so many things came into being in modern times, modern times being, you know, 18, late 1800s on, mm-hmm. that really changed butter mm. for us, uh, one yes. being in the Industrial Re- Revolution. I mean, yes. Yeah, the period of the late 1800s uh, was a massive game changer in, in the butter world because essentially butter left home. It left the farm. It had always been on the farm and for as long as it was farming. And... Then with the invention of the cream separator, which was the late 1880s, um, that shifted everything because now people could take milk and instantly separate the cream portion from the liquid portion by a process of centrifugal force. And with that, you know, before the cream separator, they would wait 
hours, I mean, oh, 12 to 24 hours for the milk to set and then the cream to rise mm. and then skim the cream off. So Which it's I, very, I love to do. You yeah, open up, you yeah, know, a, a, right. a, a jar of, of milk, mm. um, whole that milk, natural. Nice you know, raft of cream on get top. That, yeah, that yeah. cap, that cap of cream on top. What a treat. Yeah. yeah. But that would take many, many hours. So it mm. slowed down the whole process. So once the cream separator was invented, farmers were now just taking their milk to a local creamery, a local plant, and there it was separated, and they would make butter right there at the plant. And so that, you know, that was the beginning of industrializing butter hmm. in the late 1880s. And then they hmm. would, oh, and then refrigeration came along. Yes, right. Done, that was a big... Yeah, nice show on that. Yes. It just changed our, our oh, world totally, yes, you know. Yes, it's really true. That period was remarkable. You had refrigeration, the cream separator, margarine shows up, you know, so many things that radically changed. Margarine. Margarine. Let's just, let's just dispense quickly with that, yeah. <laughs> as we did in, in, in history. But yeah. why did margarine come about? Let's just do a quick a quickie on margarine, because I think that... Yeah, yeah. So, those of us who remember back when yeah. were raised, many of us yes. raised on margarine. But the margarine you were raised on was nothing like the original margarine, which was uh, invented by a French chemist. And he, uh, well, Napoleon III at the time had issued a, like, created a contest for someone to, to create uh, a butter alternative for his soldiers, something that was more portable and cheaper and easier. And easier once again, to, yeah, cheaper. Yeah, price right, price cheaper. came into exactly. it. Exactly. So uh, this French chemist came up with this mixture of beef fat, milk, salt, and some annatto, some food coloring, mm-hmm. mixed it all together, and voila, that was the first margarine, it's called oleo. Uh, and so, you know, that, when that came on the scene, and it evolved, you know, the flavors evolved, but it wasn't until the, the 20th century that it became a vegetable oil-based product. Um, so it took some time to evolve. And, and often they would actually mix this meat, you know, this beef-based uh product with some natural butter and get what's called a butterine product hmm. or, you know so there was a lot you know a lot a lot of creativity there going yeah. on, but yes. so but margarine just you know changed it just started this 90 year long battle that was brutal i mean it's vicious it was incredible that the butter makers used you know, push for any kind of reg, uh, regulations or legislation or taxation, anything that would cripple the margarine producers. Yeah, I mean, it was putting them out of. People would use it not only just in their to spread on their toast, but for baking and for mm-hmm. you know cooking general everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Where was the flavor? Where was the good fat? You yeah. Know? Yeah. And uh, oh, and they would tout and see. This is this was interesting. And all the ads would tout health benefits yes. of margarine over butter yeah. and how false that mm-hmm. was, right? Yeah, well, now we know. That's right. kind of tragic, actually. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we can do away with that. That's enough, okay. on, <laughs> enough on margarine. But we, along with, you mentioned the Industrial Revolution was a game changer. I mean, that including um, refrigeration and, and the cream separator, you have these huge mechanical churners. Mm. Yes. Well, that that was post-war, yeah. essentially. Yeah, post-Second World War. You have uh, what's called a continuous churn was developed, or also called a butyrator. And these are fully automated 
gigantic machines that now today can make about 22,000 pounds of butter per hour. Hmm. And, you know, the original ones didn't do that much, but, you know, they've, they've evolved. 22,000 pounds an hour. That's so what, I mean, butter is essentially become, goes from cream to butter in, in about three seconds, three seconds. So compare that with a commercial batch churn, which is another way that we get a lot of our uh, commodity butter. It's Think still of it being as done. small batch butter, kind of like small batch Well, there's, co- there, a batch churn can be small, but it also can be very big. You know, I visited ones, uh, creameries, where they have batch churns that are about the size of a small garage. Oh. <laughs> and, and, but they look like a giant clothes dryer. They're big, round, you know, cylindrical uh, churns with a window, and they make, they've those have been in operation, you know, since, oh gosh, since the 20s. I mean, some they used to be wood, now they're stainless steel, many of them. Um, they take about an hour to make butter. So here you have, you know, even within the same commercial industry, some people making it in three seconds, other people take an hour to make butter. What is there any discernible difference um, in the, the mm. um, small... Um, when you say, when you say the, small the batch, batch churn, batch churn, churn, not small yeah. batch churn, mm-hmm. and continuous churn. Well, there's many things that affect the texture and flavor of, of a butter, and what I have discovered that's um, that I can say for certain is that the industrial churns, the, these big ones, um, before the cream even goes into the churn, it goes through this tempering process where they essentially take the butter to a certain temperature, drop it, take it up again. And what that does, it's kind of brilliant actually, is that they're, they're modifying the construction of the ma- uh, fat molecule because every fat molecule has liquid and crystalline fats. And if you have too much liquid fat in them, you get a greasy butter. Mm-hmm. If you have too much crystalline fat, you get a crumbly butter. So this tempering process that they've figured out, you know, precisely, uh, gives the, just the right ratio, and that's why so much of our beautiful uh, supermarket butter is, I mean, some of it's beautiful, some of it's not, but <laughs> a lot of it has this beautiful velvety texture. You know, it's very cohesive, it's very spreadable. That's, that's a modern phenomenon, and it's very much a benefit of the industrial system. You know, batch churn butter is... It can be quite smooth and beautiful too, and oftentimes you know the ratio you, you just get lucky. Um, but there's also you know some batch churn butters that are not as cohesive. You know they're just not quite as. That's sort of I keep coming back to the word velvety. Mm. Um, so well, now, and then let's talk about cultured butters. Mm, right. What yeah. and what creates a yeah. cultured. Butter. I yeah. mean, I, I know mm-hmm. very well from mm. the Vermont Creamery <clears throat> butter is a, a well-known cultured butter that you can yes. find on the supermarket shelf, right? Um, and mm-hmm. several other brands, I'm sure. From, yeah, you, you have a nice list in the back of your book. I do. Um, yeah. Of of Gotta butters. Like um, yeah, but well, at, you know, at, you go back in history, every butter was cultured. That's there what was I was asking. What would, what would no, it look like? What would the butter yeah. in history look like to yeah. us or taste like to us? Yeah, like it a cultured would be, butter. Quite strong, some of it, considering it was raw milk, they didn't have refrigeration, and it went through this natural culturing process that happened because the milk was being set out. You know, it set out for 12 to 24 hours, 
the lactic bacteria, which is everywhere, everywhere in a dairy, it's just naturally present, mm -hmm. it would have been culturing and fermenting the milk. And so, you know, it really wasn't again until we had the cream separator that suddenly we had a new kind of cream that was super fresh, like instantly fresh. That was like a new product. Mm. So culturing now is a decision. You know, you either make it sweet or you decide that you're going to inoculate the cream with different bacterial cultures. And that's been done in in Europe, you know, continuous, particularly France. Uh, there's many cultured butters. That's a tradition there. But it's a pretty new thing now in the States mm. here. People in China. <laughs> you told um, um, uh, the story of the guy who was making virgin butter. Yeah. Which was I thought was rather humorous, but about dipping your hand, dipping, dipping the hands. Yeah. yeah, he was he was making a talking girl. About the, talking about the bacteria that's everywhere that gets into the butter. You the know, you girl butter careful. and the boy butter. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. The, his name is Patrick Johansson, also known as the Butter Viking, <laughs> and he's a Swedish guy. Very by far the most interesting butter maker that I interviewed and met with, you know, in all my research because he's constantly tinkering with this process, particularly around the bacteria. Um, yeah, he's just constantly adjusting, making little adjustments to acidity and temperature and time. Uh, but so one of these, one of his experiments, he's also got a good sense of humor, was, <laughs> it was to make a girl butter and a boy butter. And he went to a restaurant where he was delivering his butter with two vats of cream, and he had the guys, you know, put their hand in one vat of cream, and the girls put their hand in the other vat of cream, and you know, then took them so back. So there, they introduced some, some some interesting bacteria some into lactic the bacteria yeah. because apparently it's present all around us. I'm sure it's on us, uh, and he says that the girl butter was delicious, but the boy <laughs> butter was not. <laughs> there you go, girls. Well, and right. it only stands to reason because mm -hmm. back in the, in <clears throat> not ancient times, but old times, yeah. only only women were allowed yes. to milk the cows, right? Yes, it was taboo uh, almost universally for men to have anything to do with dairying. It was very much a female domain because it was so connected to birth and fertility mm -hmm. and lactation. You know, it's very much a feminine thing. And hence the, and the maidens with the, the yoke of yeah. wooden milk right. pails and exactly. know, walking These around. Hardy women. I mean, it's yes. a great, it's just a great image, you know, of, yes. of the, the women yeah. milk maidens. But yes, thank goodness that there is uh, industrialization in that <laughs> regard. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it's true. But, you know, women also developed, you know, they gained a certain status from the fact that they made butter. Uh, butter was valuable, and mm -hmm. butter was also kind of mysterious. Beer. For, they were beer makers, too. Women were yeah. primarily the beer makers. I yeah. Mean, well, mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, yeah. So watch out. We'll cut off your butter. I'll <laughs> cut off your beer. <laughs> Better be yeah. nice, right? No, I often say that the whole dairy industry grew up on the shoulders of women. Yeah. That's true. Absolutely. Around the world. Yeah. Scot and, and scotch, too, I think. You know, bourbons. Yeah, we're really uh, yeah, oh, not scotch necessarily, but bourbons. Oh. Yeah, the women were were some of the early and strongest, mm -hmm. um, and still are, um, mm. batch bourbon makers. Mm -hmm. Well, there's so much, so yes. much we could just 
yes. could take you through the entire book, <laughs> but then you wouldn't have anything to read. You right, see, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that that it is an interesting um, test for our listeners. Is next time you go and buy your butter, whatever butter, and I'm sure mm-hmm. everyone sort of has a favorite. But yes. when you're buying your butter, and especially now at this holiday season that we're in, mm-hmm. everyone's using lots and lots of butter. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's good for you. Everything in moderation. Right. Remember. Right. But look at the look at the label. Does it usually say mm-hmm. on the um, Let's say more of a commodity kind of butter. Well, no, Land of Lakes is, has mm-hmm. different brands. But yeah. look, does it tell you um, what the, not the origin, but how it was made or when it was made? Um, not so much. Uh, and in fact, some industrial producers uh, will are adding diacetyl to the butters, which is an, it's, it's what gives, diacetyl is what gives butter its dis- butteriness. It's so is, is it a flavor additive? Sort so it's of a, a flavor, flavor. Add, additive, it's, but it's listed as a natural flavor. So basically they're boosting what's already in butter. You know, diacetyl is naturally in butter, so they're adding more of that to give it um, a stronger butteriness. And so, but you won't see diacetyl because that would scare people, you know, mm-hmm. so they just say natural flavoring. So it's if you're going to have, you know, a butter tasting or compare butters, it's it's not really fair to compare one that has this kind of amped up diacetyl component with one that hasn't. Natural, you know? just and, an, uh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you want a butter. <clears throat> again, if you're if you're comparing apples to apples, um, you want a butter that just says cream, cream salt. You know, that's really natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, then, and do a separate tasting for cultured butters. That should yes, be just, you know, absolutely cultured. culture against culture. Yeah. yeah. Although here, that's another whole uh, thing to tease apart because what I discovered really, really surprised me is that cultured butter, again, I, you know, I discussed how the vat is, of cream is inoculated with, mm-hmm. the butt, with the bacteria and it's left to sit for 18 to 24 hours, you know, to get this nice tanginess. So it's this long process, and back in the 70s, the big guys, the big butter makers, particularly in Europe, I think it was Denmark who figured this out, that they would just, they could just make sweet butter quickly without waiting for anything to culture, and then they could just inject a lactic flavoring, essentially. It's natural, but they just simply inject it into the butter, and it's called cultured butter. Even hmm. though it's not actually, it's not gone through the traditional process. I mean, it still the tastes curing. fine, yeah. and you can't argue against the flavor of it. But I think of all the butter makers that are going through the traditional process, and, you know, and and really monitoring the bacteria because it's not that easy to do. You know, the cream changes through the seasons, and it just seems so unfair that there's not a designation for that. Yeah. And some butter makers, I know Sierra Nevada, for instance, uh, they they make culture butter and they specifically say vat cultured so if there was a designation that would be it well if you can find it and you look for it but look for some some smaller makers or um, yeah. mm-hmm. compare the different types if you're interested in tasting the butter yes. it is it's phenomenal it really yeah, does you really. can taste so many differences when you mm-hmm. you know you start and texture focusing too on, yeah texture is yeah. really fun yeah. yeah elaine thank you so much this is so oh. interesting and and i as i say urge my listeners to Look at their butter packages, but also take a look at the book. It is, yeah, it's just got so much fun history in it. It's really. And recipes. 
Uh, and I forgot right. to mention right. there are. Recipe. I mean, th- yeah. that's just sort of a, a yeah. you know an extra added bonus yeah. there. But they yeah. are delicious recipes, indeed. Yeah. Butter recipes. Yeah. Who needs it? Just eat the butter. But uh, yeah. the recipes are wonderful. And yeah. you're you getting it from a, a former pastry chef. So there you go. A great right. pie crust for yeah. the holidays. That's right that's another initiative for you yeah. for him to get the book. All right, right. thanks, Elaine Kosorova, and the book again is Butter: A Rich History. Thank you. And thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And be sure to tune in to Heritage Radio Network for so many more wonderful programs. And if you are so inspired, go to our website at heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart in the upper right-hand corner. Every little bit helps. We are listener-supported. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.